The rest of you can join me in the Old Testament book of Joel. The Old Testament book of Joel. And I know that's not a common place for us to go. So if you're using the Red Bible, it's on page 901. Alright? It's after Hosea, before Amos. Which it might be hard to find those books too. So I don't know if that helps at all. I'll give you a few minutes, alright? Joel, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. uh, But we are going to step away from Matthew... Uh, for, for this Sunday and next Sunday, and as we prepare ourselves for Easter and then celebrate Easter, uh, we are going to go to Joel, and we are going to find the cross and resurrection of Jesus here in this strange Old Testament book. Joel was a prophet, and prophet is someone who brings the Word of God to the people of God. Okay, There's other stuff involved, uh, but that's enough to start with. Okay, as we read this book together. So Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 17 verses. And I'll just acknowledge, it's strange, okay? Uh, So, it's weird. Uh, But here we go, and I hope we can shed some light on it. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Hear now the word of God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, they run as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, 
Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Let's pray. Father, these are hard words in front of us tonight. And we come trusting, believing that these are words that you have given to us, that by your Spirit you have given us these scriptures, these books that we call the Bible, as an authority for us, as a way for us to know you, as a way for us to know your work in the world. And so often when we come to these words, we're confused uh, rather than clarified. And so would you help us? Because part of our problem with these words is not only understanding them, but humbling ourselves to receive them because they say harsh things about us. So would you give us humility? Would you give us the grace of understanding? And more than that, would you by your Holy Spirit give us the grace of transformation so that we can live lives so that we can be a community uh, that displays your goodness and your greatness to the world. We'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard an interview this week with a woman named Maria Tatar. And Maria is the professor of Germanic language and literature at Harvard. Only she really is something more than that. She's actually a professor of fairy tales. Her expertise is in studying and teaching these stories that have come to us uh, from the Germanic peoples and that have become very foundational for our culture. These stories uh, that Disney has taken and made into movies, uh, these stories that it would surprise you if you listened to her, how much they shape the other stories that we tell. She made a connection between uh, the story of, uh, of Cinderella and the shoe and the, the show Sex and the City and the, the obsession with shoes in that show. And there's actually apparently an episode where one of the women loses her shoe and there's this whole theme of Cinderella woven through it. Amazing how these stories have shaped our culture. But there's a tension when you talk about fairy tales, especially to someone who really knows them and knows their roots. Because we think of fairy tales as stories for children, right? But if you go back to the roots of these stories, they are very adult. 
gruesome violence. Majorly dysfunctional families. Incest and things like that. Not stories that we would consider appropriate for children. They are dark tales. More akin to our horror movies uh, than Disney cartoons. And this touches on a question, one of the many confusing questions, of being a, a parent of young children. And it's the question, what do you do with darkness? What do you do with darkness? And it can be the very literal darkness of it's time to go to bed at night, and mommy, I'm scared, can you turn on the light light or crack the door a little bit further open? Uh, and it's a broader view of darkness with disturbing things like we find in fairy tales and unfortunately disturbing things that we find in our world. We live in a dark world, don't we? We live in a place, even with all of our resources and money and technology, we still live with incredible tragedy. And so what do we do with darkness? It's not only a question for parents with young children, it's a question for each one of us. How do we live in a world of disaster? A disaster sometimes that we know in our own self, in our own families, in our own communities. Events like, I don't know if you heard the news from Brunswick, Georgia, of a child shot, a young infant shot in a botched robbery this past week by a teenager. How do we live in a world like that? What do we do with darkness? Well, the book of Joel, in many ways, was written in response to that question. We don't know exactly when the book was written, but it was, we know for sure it was written at a time where God's people had experienced a series of disasters. And we kind of lump them all together and call them the exile. So God's people, the nation of Israel, they were in this land that he had promised to them, but all of a sudden they weren't. They were attacked again and again, defeated, their homes destroyed, their families torn asunder and sent around the world away from their homeland. So this was a dark time for the people of God. And Joel is a gift from God to his people to say, here is how you deal with darkness. Did you hear all the images of darkness as we read this text? They're all throughout this book. The prophet is saying to the people of God, he's saying to us, here's how you respond, here's how you live in a dark world. And so I want to look at his words uh, this evening, and, and we'll see that the prophet gives us a description of darkness, and then he gives us a response to darkness. So first of all, the description of darkness in chapter 1, Joel describes an invasion of locusts. It's probably what this book is most famous for. Uh, he describes these locusts who have descended on the crops of God's people and utterly destroyed them. And then in chapter 2, he talks about an invasion of, an, of a foreign army. This army that he says is like no other in its power that comes and destroys the homes and the places that belong to God's people. 
And there's debates about these two chapters. Some people say the locusts are a metaphor for the army. And so, uh, some other people say the army is a metaphor for the locust. And then some other people say, and I think this is right, Joel is kind of covering all his bases here. He is giving the people resources for dealing with disaster and the two ways for life to be ruined in the ancient world were some sort of natural disaster that destroys crops or some sort of military disaster that destroys your home and your family. And Joel covers his bases and he talks about both of these realities of the world that God's people live in. And these two things, I think, are linked by verse 3 of chapter 2. Verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. God's people have experienced a reversal of God's intention for creation. So what's the Garden of Eden? It's this ideal place, right? It it is what we were made for. It it is a place uh, where humanity lived in perfect harmony with God, in perfect harmony with each other, and had abundantly everything that they needed or wanted. That's the Garden of Eden. And of course, we know the Bible story. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they lost that garden. But for Joel's people, for the people of Israel, there was a second Garden of Eden. And that was Zion, that we're introduced to in verse 1 of this chapter. The city of Jerusalem. Jewish people understood and believed that Jerusalem was going to be the new Eden. That God was working He dwelt with them. He lived with them there. The temple was in Jerusalem. He lived with them there. And because His presence was there, Jerusalem was being formed and cultivated to be a new Eden, a place where humanity dwelt with God and had abundantly everything they needed or wanted. But what's happened? What has happened here to Joel's people? Zion... Jerusalem, the new Garden of Eden, has become a desolate wilderness because of the army, because of the locusts. Instead of a place of abundance, it had become a place of lack, of absence, of need. Why? Why had this disaster happened? The reversal of God's intention for His creation and for His people. Verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army. The undoing of creation that these people had experienced was a result of the Creator. It was a result of the judgment of the Creator on those who had rebelled against Him. Joel talks here about the day of the Lord. That was supposed to be a really happy day for God's people because it was the day when God was going to show up and defeat their enemies and give them victory. But what Joel is saying is that's gotten turned around. 
He's saying to the people, now you are God's enemies. Because of your rejection, because of your rebellion, God is coming against you with His army. The Creator is undoing His creation as an expression of judgment. If you're an alert reader of the Old Testament, Joel will sound familiar because there's another place where locusts and darkness are an expression of the judgment of God. Remember the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt? God comes through Moses to Pharaoh and says, free them. And Pharaoh says no. And then what happens? Creation turns against Pharaoh. In a series of plagues, Exodus 10 and 11, two of which are locusts, and then ultimately before the loss of the firstborn son, darkness. Pharaoh rebelled against the Creator, and the Creator turns the creation against him. And the tragic message of Joel is that, people of God, you have become Pharaoh. You have become the enemy of God because of your resistance, because of your rejection of His way and His word, because of your rebellion against Him. Now, when we talk about passages like this, where we see and experience the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God, we have to be careful. Because the image is not an impatient dad who explodes at every little slip-up of his kids. The image is of a betrayed spouse. A spouse who has been betrayed over and over and over again and now responds. God has sent warnings over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to His people, but they have turned to other gods, to other spouses. They committed adultery. And God now responds, yes, with anger. But it is a just anger. And Joel's words are harsh and they're frightening, but they are words of diagnosis. And they are a diagnosis not only for the people of God then, but they are a diagnosis for us now. We don't want to hear what Joel has to say. And, and honestly, it's not fun for me to preach these words, to speak these words either. But to want these words out of the Bible is like wanting the word cancer out of the vocabulary of a doctor. We obviously don't want to hear it, right? But it is a necessary word for any potential of healing. If a doctor cannot say cancer, then he cannot treat it. If a prophet cannot say judgment, then he cannot move us towards healing. Please understand what I'm not saying. I am not saying that every bad thing that happens in your life is a result of something bad that you have done. Okay, there's this view out there that I am fi I'm having trouble finding a parking place because I flipped off that driver who cut me off 
a few minutes ago. That there's this kind of one-to-one, God is just waiting, and and He's going to get you for every little thing. That's not what I'm saying. Remember, God over hundreds and hundreds of years had waited while His people had betrayed them before He came against them with judgment. What I am saying is that every single person in this room is a participant in the rebellion that prompts these words. We are born on Pharaoh's team, which is Adam's team. We are born bent away from our God, from our Creator, and so our world is dark. It is dark because of our rebellion against Him. And part of the way that we need to respond to these words is a willingness to hear the diagnosis. The humility to receive harsh words that are necessary and true. Have I convinced you to make Joel your favorite book of the Bible yet? It's hard, isn't it? So what do we do? We've heard the diagnosis. We've heard the description of the darkness of the world that we live in. What do we do? Well, we we keep reading because the prophet not only gives us a description of darkness, he gives us a response to darkness as well. There are two trumpets in chapter 2 of Joel. One in verse 1 and one in verse 15. The first trumpet is the sound of alarm. The second trumpet is the sound of response. So, the first trumpet is the sound of diagnosis. And the second trumpet is the sound of healing. This is the prophet instructing the people how to respond to what has happened. How to respond to the darkness of their world. And what he does is he tells them to gather. He sounds the trumpet to gather them together in a worship service. And what's interesting about this gathering, this place where they are going to express sorrow and confession, where they are going to pray that God would intervene, is that every person has to participate. Usually events like this, two groups of people are exempted. Uh, Mothers and nursing children and newlyweds. But did you see in verse 16 how he says, even those groups of people have to be a part of this. They have to be a part of this public confession of sin. And not only does every person have to participate, but every part of every person has to participate. Verses 12 and 13, he tells them, You don't just confess with the external part of you. Don't just rip your clothes as a sign of confession. Rip your heart as well. Turn to God with all of your heart. This is what we do with darkness. We mourn, we repent, and we pray. This is why when we gather as a community here at Centerpoint, we make a part of our worship service a confession of sin. In doing that, we are responding to the second trumpet of Joel in chapter 2. We are coming and we are owning 
our rebellion. We are crying out to God's forgiveness, His mercy, and His grace because of that rebellion. And that should characterize not only Sunday, but Monday through Saturday as well. We need to every day hear the trumpets of Joel turn in sorrow over our sin and seek God's intervention. To follow Jesus, to be a Christian, is to be a person of repentance. Everyday repentance, not just once a week repentance. But there's a problem here because in verse 13, Joel motivates our confession of sin with the character of God. He says God is compassionate, He's gracious, He's merciful, He is steadfast in His love towards us, right? And, and this is deeply rooted in the faith of the Old Testament. Uh, these are words that go all the way back to the book of Exodus as a way to describe God and the way that He identifies Himself in relationship to His people. That if they will turn towards Him, He will turn towards them with grace. But there's a problem because if you keep reading in verse 14, what seems very certain in verse 13 now seems a little uncertain. Joel says, who knows? Turn to this God of grace and compassion and mercy, and who knows if He will respond? Who knows if He will decide to take this disaster away from you? Who knows if He will deal with the darkness of your world? Does that mean confession is like, is like gambling? Are we, are we gambling on the grace of God when we confess our sins? Are we throwing it out there hoping that we roll the right dice to get grace? What do we do with this uncertainty that he introduces here? Well, of course our confession is not a gamble. Our confession comes from confidence. And that confidence comes from verse 17. And the image of verse 17 is the people gathered for this corporate expression of grief and sorrow and repentance. And they, of course, gather at the temple because the temple was supposed to be the sign of God with His people, blessing His people. And so they gather at the temple and know that the temple at this time was probably in ruins. Had probably been destroyed by foreign armies by now. And if not in ruins, then maybe rebuilt, but nowhere close to its former glory. And so these people are standing here with the signs of ruin all around them. The signs of disaster all around them. And they're standing before the presence of God who was supposed to come towards them in blessing, but because of their sin has come towards them in curse. And they are crying out to them. And what is between them and God? It's the priest, right? The priest are standing between the people of God and the presence of God. And they are crying out to God, take away our shame. 
Don't let the nations around us say, where is their God? Here's where our confidence comes from. Here's where the confidence to confess our sins, the confidence to seek God's mercy comes from. It comes from reading verse 17 and seeing Jesus there. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is our priest who stands between us mourning for our sins and the dark judgment of God's presence. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday traditionally Christians remember the time when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey. And remember what He came to Jerusalem to do. He, he went to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And when He goes to the cross, He takes up the position between the darkness of God's judgment on His creation and us. What happens as Jesus hangs on the cross taking our curse? Joel 2 happens, right? Trembling, darkness descends on creation. Why? Because Jesus is taking this army. Jesus is taking the destruction of God's judgment for us. And that is why we can confess. That is why we can repent. That is why we can know that we that God will be gracious and compassionate towards us. Why we know that his love will never forsake us. Because as Jesus hung on a cross, he took up the lament a lament from Psalm 22 that reflects Joel 2. And he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes up the lament on our behalf so that we can know forgiveness, so that we could know new life in Him. That's why our worship doesn't stop with a confession of sin. But we move through our repentance and we hear the gospel, right? We hear the truth from God's word that we have a sure and certain guarantee in Jesus Christ of God's compassion, of his mercy, of his steadfast love. He stood between us and God's judgment. And that is why we can stand before God and call Him Father and seek His help and know His compassion. This is why our lives as Christians cannot stay in sorrow over sin. This is such a temptation, especially for us as Presbyterians. We have a really robust doctrine of sin and we can live there and we can dwell on how messed up we are and that's true, but that's only the diagnosis. And God, by giving us His Son, has given us a treatment 
And so we can move from sorrow to joy. Because Jesus is our priest, stood between us and the darkness. Fairy tales need storytellers. And that's how the darkness of these stories get dealt with, right? A parent tells the story to the child and edits out some of the harsher portions. God is not a storyteller like that. He does not edit the darkness out of our world. But by His Son, He rather enters the dark tale of our world. To not pretend that the darkness is not there, but to take the darkness on Himself so that we could see His light and so that we could know that light will overcome darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of a high priest. We thank You for Jesus who stood for us bearing the weight of Your wrath on our behalf. I pray that You would help us to hear the harsh but truthful words of Scripture about our sin, about our rebellion, but would You fill us with faith so that we would run and bring to You our sorrow and no joy because of Your forgiveness, because of Your compassion, because of Your mercy, because of Your steadfast love. Help us to do that now. Help us to do it tomorrow and throughout this week so that we would be transformed by Your grace. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.